the word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of the work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. This is Darwin Messadu. Welcome to The Ekphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. Today's subject, Amy Sherald. She's an American painter based in Baltimore, Maryland. But first, let's get into some art news. So, let's see here. We have uh, this article from NBC New York, Metropolitan Museum. Of art reopens to public after five months of closure. So that was dated August 29, 2020. So let's see, the Met reopens to the public for the first time since its doors were shuttered back, uh, well, five months ago, I guess. So Andrew Cuomo finally gave the green light to do so last Monday. It's uh, limiting, to limit, they're limited to about 25% capacity. Uh, and visitors must reserve tickets in advance. This is the kind of thing they do at, um, like at big museum openings and exhi- you know, exhibits. But might as well use that same uh, tactic here for COVID and social distance purposes. So on a normal day in August, they they see like thirty to you know thirty to forty thousand people come through in and out of that building throughout the day. So you know twenty five percent of that is still going to be um, still going to be in the thousands. It says here, um, it will help us with revenue, but we're not out of the woods financially, said Daniel Wise, president and CEO of the museum. Um, yeah, these museums have um, sure been hit hard. A lot of them have been trying to do things virtually and a bunch of different creative ways to try to make some revenue in the meanwhile, maybe uh, sell more merch on their website, promote those kinds of things, um, maybe some online classes. But hey, the bulk of their uh, the bulk of their budget is, is made with you know having that foot traffic come in there, especially to that gift shop, you know, and um, folks frequent that. Plus, there's always donations. I'm sure they're always taking donations. But so if you're ever looking forward to getting to the Met, you know, what I mean, go online, reserve your ticket. This is the time. Uh, probably a lot of people are still shy of going out of their home. Uh, take advantage of that. Wear a mask. You know, wash your hands frequently, don't touch stuff, um, and yeah, enjoy the Met. Let me know how it goes. Uh, moving on, we got another piece of news here. Good. Uh, speaking of uh, virtualizing the uh, art experience, uh, the University of Miami has an article here uh, called, uh, let's see, New Virtual Exhibit Spotlights Cuban Culture. Uh, this one's by Amanda Perez. And um, basically what happened is some of the students launched a digital display through a course that, uh, that they're taking at the school. It offers a hands-on experience in the curatorial and museum fields. So if you're studying and trying to become a curator, uh, this is a way to complete that kind of um, coursework online. So the students had the opportunity to select materials for this exhibit from the Lowell Art Museum. Uh, and the Cuban Heritage Collections, uh, material on modern and contemporary Cuban art 
and performing arts, respectively. The students had an opportunity to select materials from the exhibit, uh, for the exhibit from the Low Art Museum and the Cuban Heritage Collection's materials on modern and contemporary Cuban art and performing arts, respectively. Manzar explained um, intervisuality. Intervisuality? What does that even mean? Intervisuality that is the process. Okay, here we go. That is the process of interpreting images based on other related or contiguous images was the concept used to guide their choices. Okay, fancy way saying collage, if you ask me, but hey, I'm not an artist. Uh, I just play one on a, on a podcast. So according to Manzar, the study of, human, of uh, Cuban culture has been fragmented since the revolution in 1959. Many visual and theater artists who left Cuba were erased from Cuban history on the island. Exile communities began to, cure, to create their own history, severing themselves from anything produced inside Cuba. I'm from Miami, so um, I know for sure the Cuban diaspora is um, it's a diverse group, uh, but there's always um, contention um, with, at least I'm you know, reported from what, what I've known, from the relationships that I've had, you know, the contention between those that are still on the island and those that have, you know, come, um, come to the States or, you know, or elsewhere um, on the planet. Some people, some of them love it. You know, there's 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 like diehard believers there. You know, um, even abroad, there's diehard believers in, in the system. And and but uh, over here, especially in South Florida, um, it's rot with uh, with landmines. You know, uh, th that community. How you speak about um, definitely they're not a monolith. So you know, you got to be open minded to um, what they're. Um, their history and be respectful to the to their history and 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 how they choose to represent the different uh, facets of the diaspora from Cuba. So I'll continue here in the article. Um, originally, the exhibit was supposed to be housed physically at the Low Museum because of COVID nineteen. You know, recurring theme here. The exhibit had to be transitioned into a digital uh, landscape. So we all learned how to adjust to the circumstances and to work as a team despite all the difficulties. For one of these um, curators or uh, future curators, uh, for me personally, it was a new experience learning how to create a digital exhibit. I think it's a great skill to have, especially in our changing times. So that's cool. The University of Miami still um, being able to support their their visual arts students, um, giving them a learning opportunity and being something that, you know, is, is going to be adaptable for a lot of other institutions. So, hey, might as well get on that horse before, um, before everybody else does and uh, add, that, add that to the resume. That's good looking out there at the University of Miami. All right, so the final uh, piece we have here from uh, this one was August 29th. And it was actually written in Vanity Fair. It's a pretty long piece, but uh, and I'll do my best to summarize as much of it as I can. Um, what should a museum look like in 2020? So as the art world experiences renewed scrutiny, curators, administrators, and artists imagine 
templates are changing. This is by Kimberly Drew. Uh, again, it was in Vanity Fair. So it's a long piece. I'll, I'll skip around a little bit, but um, this this first uh, excerpt is uh, is really gets to the heart of it all. So on social media, companies use marketing dollars to value signal their wokeness, a trend that has made its way into the cultural sphere. With museums sharing the hashtag Black Lives Matter hashtag, hashtag twice. Okay, so it says hashtag Black Lives Matter, but then it actually writes the word hashtag. So that's not on me. Actually, I read it first, so I guess it's on me. But uh, whatever, <laughs> I'll move on. Alongside works by African-American artists, in an ideal world, this show of solidarity would be powerful. But as a former employee of Creative Time, the Studio Museum in Harlem, and Metropolitan Museum of Art, I, like many art workers and visitors, have been underwhelmed watching museums like the British Museum and the Met institutions with historic ties to colonialism use a slogan rather than admit to their own roles in the race problem. This ignites a desire for a more holistic investigation of museums, not only as homes for art and culture, but as entities with both the buying power and the political ties to make a lasting impact on life beyond this uprising and so it goes on to interview several uh, different folks in the art world um, and you know it gives the first-hand experience uh, of these folks coming from the different perspectives it's a black article put it that way so uh, it's, it's focused on blackness and um, we get to hear from their perspectives in our world so that's kind of cool Okay, so one of the, the things that it points out starting off here is that there's a chasm between institutions issuing newsletters about standing in solidarity and those that, like the Walker Art Center, that have, for example, stopped contracting their local police force for public events. So this whole thing is, is talking about that specific difference between institutions that talk about it versus those institutions that be about it, you know, talking the talk, but actually uh, making some uh, material changes in how they go about doing their business um, when it comes to supporting the movement for black lives. Uh, so they've been um, other things here. Of course, none of these demands um, are new. They've been introduced by the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, the Art Workers Coalition, Women Artists in Revolution, and others since the turn of the century and before. So until changes are made, basically there is no volume of social media posts that's gonna make make the difference and you just gonna make up for it. So, so here's a group of art workers. Uh, they share their testimonials, observations, and ideas for a path forward. We start off with uh, a workers collective, Art and Museum Transparency. Um, and so one way they, they feel like um, wealth should be redistributed in the museum in the Association Association of African American Museums, many of which operate on budget magnitude smaller than places like MoMA or the Met. Hello, what did it say here? Okay, oh, so some museums have been talking about taking this moment to support and lift up those already doing this work. Okay, so here they're saying that um, 
this is a chance to signal boost basically um you know african-american spaces so that's one of the the demands or uh one of the um requests that this workers collective would like to see in terms of changes the african-american museum in philadelphia is threatened with the loss of the entire city budget funding for example at the same time it reasserts its duty as reminding the public of the historical context of police violence against black people Okay, so the next person is a curator at the moment, actually in New York City, Thomas Slacks. He goes, um, I don't want to be part of a response that does not begin with the premise that there can be an end to white supremacy and that institutions historically organized to safeguard, safeguard culture and civilization must play an active role in this struggle. So again, they're at, um, folks are asking for tangible change, not just uh, slogans and, hash and sharing hashtags. So within days, the public theater installed uh, in, there was a pro in protest in um, protests in what were these protests here? The founder of Just Above Midway Gallery says that cultural institutions should be a business of turning cans into cans. So uh, this institution. Uh, they they put out the you know the portraits in front of the in front of the theater. They changed it to George Floyd, Tony McDade, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. You know their their posters are prominently displayed out in front of this theater. And they allowed um, folks to come in and grab water and uh, use restrooms. So yeah, and that you know help and support the cause of their their building. They, you know. You pass it by, you know, might as well show that little support there. It's something. I'll give you that. So as I have listened to a course of demands to abolish the police grow increasingly louder, what I have heard is an analysis of how the police are not only out there in the streets and in poor and black communities, but in here, which is to say in our buildings and psyches. Oh, that is that is true. That, that that's, This is true. I'm thinking about when I go to... Uh, museums or you know these uh, art galleries when I go when I'm in these spaces you know I'm you're having a moment of reflection you're, you're taking time to fully um, embrace this work of art with this experience that you're having but I remember specifically for myself being in a in a place where so now there's a police standing there mind his business mind, mind you not doing anything wrong there for a job is supposed to be providing security how much how much beef goes down in an art gallery I don't know but you know to have this guy here with his gun and 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 the experiences that I know I have once I see cops there's a whole it gets my mind in a I'm almost already on the precipice of fight or flight just by them their presence being there like something's something's wrong something's going on something's about to be wrong you know I'm I'm a little bit on edge I'm not fully able to immerse myself in the artwork the portrait painting whatever it is I'm supposed to be there experiencing it takes me outside of that world a little bit it's like when you're at the movie theater and somebody coughs in the middle of a scene or something, or somebody starts talking in the middle of a scene. It's like, oh man, you were like fully engulfed in that world. It takes me out of it a little bit. So that's interesting though for them to point that out. I mean, what am I, the Pink Panther? You know, what are, what are we doing here? Uh, you know, a high-end, you know, art 
art theft? Is that is that is that what's going down? Like, why does a cop need to be all up in the museum? So we have an art critic. Um, her name is Jessica Lynn, and she says, "I think about the emergency of black arts organizations in the 20th century, uh, and by emergency, you know, she's talking about emerging, not like something is on fire, <laughs> like emerging, like rising." So. The rise of black art organizations in the 20th century, and I think of places that had no choice but to root themselves in the community, to serve not just as a cultural space, but sites for education, political organizing, and direct action campaigns, places for childcare and other forms of stewardship. That's that's a cool idea, Jessica. I mean, I'm thinking like, yeah, like these buildings, like especially in the moments like this when. They need to find other revenue sources, um, and and I'm not just talking about revenue. It's like they need to find other uses for the space, rather than just have this warehouse of you know thousands of dollars, millions of dollars of you know valuable art. These spaces should be actively trying to teach the community about the cultures that are housed in there, not just some place you go and gawk at the ancient Incas or um, some African art just know like they should also be able to teach about these cultures and these artists and this, these subject matters why was these things designed this way I see you have an artifact here that'd be cool Especially if this is like free for the community. You, you pay people pay for entry perhaps or you get some endowments. Those pay for you know keeping the place, keeping the lights on. But have a free class. Have a free class every now and then. What's wrong? You know, that that's a great idea. That is that sh that should be part of your duty. We have um, Tiana Nakia McLeodin, she's a visual artist. She, how does she feel about it? Well, she tells me, right now I feel institutions with public audiences should be spaces of mobilization and organization for real and thorough change. Uh, another thing I'll say about this too, the world of art, you know, and it's not just visual arts, you know, whether it's music or, um, or dance, um, or theater these are the spaces that push society forward like these are the spaces that are like you you are going there and you may become uncomfortable because we're we're gonna put it to you viscerally in a way that's undeniable and we have your full attention for this period of time and we can have that conversation it, art isn't a place you go to be closed-minded not at all it just doesn't work that way if you walk into the door, you are about to get your reality checked. Front and center. So for sure, like I get you, Tiana. Institutions should be used as like a spark for for some 
some gas that's already fuming through society and it sparks a movement and you feel it and it latches onto you and you feel inspired. Art is meant to inspire. So she goes on to say that um, when COVID-19 hit, many of the institutions were exposed for having excess endowments. So many of these were hoarding funds under the guise that they will lose money when the endowments were set up for um, these exact times to be, yeah, they were set up for this to begin with. So there must be a redistribution of those funds to support actual efforts within the institution and on the grounds. As an artist myself, I am looking to what black artists have produced and the efforts they made in great times of unrest. This is where the archives come in. As an independent curator, I'm also invested right now in ensuring that my peers are able to continue to do their work now as planned by sharing administrative and other skills they may not possess. So you're, you're featuring um, art, black art, or up and coming artists, especially if you're a, a newer type of institution you're probably not going to have some of the uh, renowned and historic um, um, uh, contributions to, to, to your museum, but you're featuring some of these artists. You know what? Let them come in-house. Let them teach in art class. Let them be the ones to speak uh, for you know a couple hours here and there you know, uh, to different audiences about their art and the type of things that inspire them. Artists are struggling. If they can't sell because they don't have exhibits, they can't, you know, there's nobody viewing their exhibits. Give them the, 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 the digital space to be able to have, like, University of Miami is doing, like a, a virtual exhibit. And have them bring some personality into it. And, and the community can support their local artists. I think some of that would be dope. I don't feel, I'll go back, go back to what she's talking about here. So I, I do not feel that this is the time for primarily white staff and led institutions to speak through black artists' works and over their black staff. Okay, so this perspective is, is yet, yet another one here. So, you know, again, uh, all these people are different, coming from different places in our art world. And what she's speaking to here is that, so you have institutions that are, you know, they're full of white people that work there and, they're, and, and, and the hierarchy is, is, is very white, this tends, tends to be, and now you have black staff. And you have black staff working in a place and you're exhibiting black art, for example. So you allowing the black staff to A, be knowledgeable about the, the exhibits, especially when they can have a, a better relationship to some of those exhibits than your white staff can, all right? Rather than a white, having your white staff be the ones to lead the institution on, a, on, a, on, on, on certain cultural things, having it come from the black perspective or from a black voice empowers the community that much more. So I, can, I feel that, you know, having us tell our story rather than someone else telling our story. So because the workplace itself historically, holistically, financially, has been a place of violence. 
cultural institutions must understand that they will have to be reworked from the inside out, she says. So I feel you from that perspective. We got another perspective, an art critic, Taylor Renee Albridge. I appreciate the moments, the moments furtive response to Trump's entry ban of people from Muslim countries in, in 2017. What did the museum do? The museum facilitated a quick rehang of their permanent collection to feature works by artists from majority Muslim nations. That was MoMA like tangibly doing something and tangibly responding. It wasn't just a hashtag. But posting up the artwork is tangible, but it is a bit passive for my taste. Really. So now she goes on, I do believe that the pervasiveness of anti-black violence that is so fundamental to the making of many American museums will require more than a cultural shift and rather a systemic institutional one. I think museums should take inventory of their economic ties with U.S. police. Non-black museum staff should not rely on the labor of their black colleagues to tell or teach them about race and anti-blackness. Non-black museum workers should work to educate themselves and ask how they perpetuate and benefit from the white supremacist violence. So this perspective here is um, not just talking about the artists, it's talking about the staffs of these institutions, people that work in a building, people that answer the phones, you know, people that write the, you know, the paperwork for, your, for the paychecks. Like, this is pervasive in all institutions in the United States. And you have moments like this that are happening right down the country, a movement for black lives. And on top of the work that they have to do, whether if it's getting the coffee or whether if it's um, working, with the, working with the curator uh, to, to get, you know, uh, to, to recruit some new artists or something. Um, now I also have to teach you <laughs> what, what uh, white supremacy means or what white privilege means or what's the difference between a non-racist and an anti-racist? These conversations happening even in our art world. We have another curator from the Studio Museum in Harlem, Legacy Russell. So the Studio Museum in Harlem has had 50, over 50 years of, of uh, actioning and, and on advancing a mission of making space for artists of African descent. This is what long-term political and cultural investment looks like, folks. Towards the building of sustained and creative black future. So a place like that. So uh, Legacy says, uh, I've deeply appreciated Jackie Wong, Sarah Lewis, and uh, a bunch of other folks. Uh, and the voices, always. But also right here and now, uh, each and in their own way is taking time to censor the issues at hand, as well as providing critical feedback and analysis of the moment in time. So, it says they're listening. And so, um, it, there's that next step that has to happen. You, you can appreciate folks and you say you're listening, but what's the actual tangible step that's going to happen that's going to come out of this? Hans Erlich Orbrist, all right, this, this guy is in um, the Serpentine Galleries in London, and uh, he's, he's been thinking of Edward Glissant recently, so, um, and, and so Glissant was, um, 
uh, intellectual uh, of sorts, right? And so he was first a member of the resistance who spoke out in favor of Martinique's independence from France. Um, and then from 1967 onward, um, through the Institute Martinique um, d'Etude uh, School, which was an agent for change, Interve intervening in political issues and implementing Creole as a school system, mostly dominated by French. So Glissant imagined that and prepared a museum for Martinique, which is unrealized, but remains a source of many ideas. So he imagined this museum as an archipelago. It would not house a synthesis, but a network of interrelationships. He wanted to create a museum which would not only point at urgencies, but also find agency to respond to urgencies. He imagined it to be a quivering place, like one that transcends established systems and thoughts and which is looking for a sort of utopian point where all worlds, cultures, and all the world's imaginations can meet and hear one another. And so, yeah, I agree. This is kind of what I was saying earlier. Um, the museum shouldn't, shouldn't just be a passive place. Art galleries shouldn't just be a passive place where you go, you see the thing, everybody's quiet, you may take a picture or two when you're not supposed to, <laughs> and, and you go, and you never really actively engage with the museum, and the museum and the art gallery never really actively try to engage with you. Just give us our donation, or buy this t-shirt. You were here. Post it on Instagram somewhere. But as he's saying here, Having a gallery grow roots in the community and intertwine with the blood and sweat and tears of the folks of that community and watering that community and then that community water you. Museums can, can go, uh, museums and art galleries can go a, a lot further uh, with that effort. And you can help, um, this is the type of thing that can help revitalize the community without gentrifying it. <laughs> remember that. Try to remember that one. Now, our final curator here is uh, Taylor Brandon. Uh, I'm, I can just read most of them. This is some good stuff here. So, uh, performative gestures like social media statements in solidarity with black life, they do nothing. Black staff are being treated unfairly. Yeah, you have you have the work of a black artist on your wall, but do you have black staff that are a representation of that and can speak authentically to the cultural nuances of said work? That's what I'm see. That's what I'm talking about. Are that same staff equitably paid? Are they listened to and cared for? Do roles for them exist outside of educational and community engagement departments? A complete overhaul is in order that centers black voices until museums are abolished. A lot of people won't agree with me, but I would like to envision a future without museums and large cultural institutions. History and black scholars have been telling us that reform is often more harmful. In the meantime, the leadership of those spaces need to be 
working towards equity and better working conditions for black staff. Okay, now I don't agree with museums being abolished, um, but I've heard the argument before where um, it's sort, some may see it sort of disrespectful to uh, kind of like, it's kind of like putting a, a line in a zoo, you know, putting folks' culture and history on display for this for these gawkers right <laughs> and it's not like they're gonna really try to enrich themselves and and find out and invest about these communities or these cultures that they just happen to come upon in you know exhibit hall b so i get you you know i'm, I'm not with you there though but i i do take the point of um as she says, until they, until then, we should have an overhaul. Lisa, she would, uh, I would encourage folks to find the small local black-led culture spaces in their own communities. Black people have been creating space for ourselves in lieu of a continuous hellish political landscape. The transgender district in San Francisco, for example, was founded by three black trans women in 2017 and is the first legally recognized transgender district in the world. Rainbow Sign, founded by Mary Ann Poehler in Berkeley, California, it was a cultural hub during its operation from 1970 to 77. Um, there's the East Oakland Youth Development Center. It's another black uh, woman-led um, cultural space for youth in East Oakland that's been in operation since 1978. So. She's leaning more towards cultural centers, um, but I take her point. So that's uh, that's our art news today, folks. Um, University of Miami article. Uh, we have one from NBC and this one at Vanity Fair. Now back to the acrostic. Born in 1973, Amy Sherald was. Uh, uh, grew up in Columbus, Georgia, one of the only handful um, kids in her private school. Um, you know, this is 1973, towards the end of the civil rights movement, um, civil rights era, sorry, and, um, you know, dealing with segregation in, in her own right down in Georgia, of course, the, the South. Uh, she identified most of those early years. Um, negotiating issues of race and identity in American in the American South as a major influence in her art as a child you know parents in the 70s art wasn't a thing art wasn't something that's aspirational uh, parents like many others steered her towards things like medicine discouraging her from pursuing art speaking about how her mother discouraged her uh, early on actually she feels um, increased her determination uh, we have a quote here from her she was a black woman born in 1930s Alabama where everything was really about surviving I always say that she was the perfect mother for me because what I needed was somebody to prove wrong I'm a strong woman because I was raised by one and I'm a better person for that Amy uh, earned her bachelor's degree in 1973 from Clark Atlanta University. I'm sorry, 1997 from Clark Atlanta University. 
And concurrent with her studies, she did an apprenticeship with art historian Dr. Arturo Lindsay over at Spelman. She participated in Spelman's International Artist in Residence program uh, in Panama in 97. A couple years later, she organized and installed uh, an international ex exhibition in uh, throughout Central and South America. Amy's style, and this is where most folks got introduced with her, she, um, I'll let her get, on, get into oh, that first introduction to a lot of non-art folks, but her style is basically simplified realism using Grissel. So she stages photographs of her subjects, folks that she just finds in the street, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, and it makes it happen where she, you know, she ends up uh, painting um, portraits of them. Uh, she's best known again for these portrait paintings. Um, and the Griselle style, what it is, is that it's basically portraying skin tones, uh, mostly in gray. Uh, she, she finds it a challenging concept um, that we can surpass the uh, outward appearance of someone. Uh, and so portraying it in gray helps you look past race. Uh, so basically, Grissel is is mostly using neutral, neutral grayish color uh, to portray skin, and uh, she's she's famous for she's famous for that. Um, her choice of subjects, like I said before, look to enlarge the genre of Af uh, of American art his historical realism by telling African American stories, so from the perspective of African Americans and uh, within their own tradition. Uh, Amy has heard complaints about her official portrait of former First Lady Michelle Obama. So this is what I was talking about. This is, you know, most folks didn't know about her style until um, the <laughs> they unveiled Michelle Obama's uh, portrait. And they're like, hey, the lady's skin's great. What's going on? What's this about? Griselle, they didn't, they didn't know uh, about this, this, this genre. And, uh, and so um, Amy explains here, uh, Miss Obama selected me, you know, uh, to create her official portrait for the museum, and the museum is the Smithsonian in D.C. She considers the first lady to be someone women can relate to, no matter shape, size, race, or color. She goes on to say that um, uh, we see our best selves in her. Furthermore, she goes, when I had time to respond to emails, a lot of the people just had to engage with art. They haven't engaged with art at all, and they're like, you have a first lady who is black woman and, and and shouldn't her skin be black? To me, when you see brown skin, it tends to codify something. So through the gray, you're almost allowed to look past that into the real person. Which brings me to today's ekphrastic poem. First Lady Michelle Obama, 2018. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. I'm thinking about you again, sitting here, wondering what could have been. All I ever wanted was for you to win, for you to be safe from the boogeymen. Bright blue skies were my vision. What happened? This is embarrassing. Truth is, you lost your way, lost your religion. 
From the beginning, you went low as sin. I took it on the shin, loved you anyways. You were forgiven. I tried to be somebody you could believe in. A guiding light away from treason, draped in white for this very reason. Don't you recognize me? I'm your countryman. Don't mind these gray scales. It's only skin. Underneath it all, underneath it all, we're truly kin. No matter how long it's been, I'll patiently wait for you to come around again. And you will thank me in the end. And I'll be your first lady. Now and then. Cheryl was the first woman to win the Outwin Butcher Bukever Portrait Competition. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Buchever Portrait Competition Grand Prize. And uh, she it accompanied the part of the Grand Prize was um, an exhibition. She also won the uh, Outwin in 2016. And she's been on it and her work's been on tour since 2016 and opened at the Kempler Museum in Kansas City, Missouri in 2017. In 2018, she presented a sold exhibition at the Contemporary Art Museum in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, you want to check her out. There are several places. She's all over the place. You can you can find her work. If you happen to be in Senegal, in Dakar, you know, um, uh, she's got work in, at the embassy, at the U.S. Embassy there, the African American Museum, uh, History Museum in D.C. Uh, you can find her work also, of course, at the Portrait Gallery. That's where the Smithsonian Portrait Gallery in D.C., that's where the First Lady uh, portrait is hung. Uh, she's got uh, a spot at the Columbus Museum in Columbus, uh, Georgia, her hometown, um, and the Nature Museum of Art in Durham, North Carolina. Homegirl gets busy. So uh, definitely check her out. Um, I would recommend, um, especially the First Lady portrait. It's a good one at the, museum, at the, at the portrait gallery. It's always busy. Sometimes, well, you know, during the quarantine there, these these museums are closed or if they are open there's very um limited um uh, pay, patrons at these at these spots uh, so i remember when i went there was a line you have to like go in the line to get close you can go up to the side and take a look if you want to get up close like you know right up on it there's, there's usually a little bit of line there uh, so check her out amy sherald i'm dara Mesadu. Thanks for listening.